Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. When a lot of white Americans, such as myself, think about segregation, the Jim Crow era, and the civil rights movement, we think about things like drinking fountains, schools, segregated lunch counters, etc. We think about attempts at separate but equal public facilities throughout the U.S. that provided standard services to whites and substandard services to blacks. And that is, of course, a very real element of life in the Jim Crow era. Blacks were walled off from whites by various means, formal and informal, and that meant that a fairly large population of Americans were not able to access the goods and services that America had to offer. In my own hometown of Portland, Oregon, for instance, there was only one hotel that blacks were allowed to stay in, and in the early 20th century, if you were black and you wanted to go out for dinner, you could only get served at very few restaurants. However, just thinking about segregation in terms of restaurants, drinking fountains, separate hotels, etc., that is accurate, but it is incomplete. The real horror of American racism isn't that there were, say, separate schools or hospitals, though those were terrible in their own way. No, the real horror of American racism is that it allowed for and attempted to justify violence, large-scale violence, by white Americans onto black Americans. America's legacy of racism and racial segregation is one in which thousands, if not millions, of people were killed, injured, and impoverished because of their ethnicity. We noted that violence happened in the slavery era. I think that's fairly well acknowledged. But probably the worst incident post-Civil War in the history of American racism happened in the 20th century in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921. At the time, Tulsa was on the smaller side, with a population of about 100,000 people, many of whom had moved there after World War I to benefit from that region's oil boom. Among those 100,000 or so Tulsans, there was a large and vibrant neighborhood called Greenwood, also known as Black Wall Street, also known as Little Africa, which housed a fairly successful black population of around 15,000. The success of African Americans in Tulsa, this town in the midst of kind of a frontier oil boom, seems to have been, perversely enough, a cause of and catalyst for the riot, and a problem for race relations in that city. Racist whites were resentful of blacks experiencing anything other than subjugation, it seems. Here's a quote from Walter White an NAACP official writing about the causes of the riot in the nation in 1921, and he does use archaic racial language in the article, but I'm just going to quote it verbatim. Quote, What are the causes of the race riot that occurred in such a place? First, the Negro in Oklahoma has shared in the sudden prosperity that has come to many of his white brothers, and there are some colored men who are wealthy. The fact caused a bitter resentment on the part of the lower order of whites, who feel that these colored men, members of an inferior race, are exceedingly presumptuous in achieving greater economic prosperity than they who are members of a divinely ordered superior race. There are at least three colored persons in Oklahoma who are worth a million dollars each. J.W. Thompson of Clearview is worth 500000 There are a number of men and women worth $100,000, and many whose possessions are valued at $25,000 and $50,000 each. 
This was particularly true of Tulsa, where there were two colored men worth $150,000 each, two worth $100,000, three $50,000, and four were assessed at $25,000. In one case where a colored man owned and operated a printing plant with $25,000 worth of printing machinery in it, the leader of the mob that set fire to and destroyed the plant was a linotype operator employed for years by a colored owner at $48 per week. The white man was killed while attacking the plant. Oklahoma is largely populated by pioneers from other states. Some of the white pioneers are former residents of Mississippi, Georgia, Tennessee, Texas, and other states more typically southern than Oklahoma. They have brought with them their anti-Negro prejudices. Lethargic and unprogressive by nature, it sorely irks them to see Negroes making greater progress than they themselves are achieving. So the idea of having a sort of frontier boomtown with this extraction economy based on oil that is suddenly wealthy, and that wealth is going everywhere, not just to white people, not just people who have benefited from the old system, that stirs resentment in 1921. And Walter White goes on, quoting from that same Nation article from 1921, quote, One of the charges made against the colored men in Tulsa is that they were radical. Questioning the whites more closely regarding the nature of this radicalism, I found it means that Negroes were uncompromisingly denouncing Jim Crow, railroad cars, lynching, peonage. In short, they were asking that the federal constitutional guarantees of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness be given regardless of color. For Negroes of Tulsa and other Oklahoma cities are pioneers, men and women who have dared, men and women who have had the initiative and courage to pull up stakes in other less favored states and face hardship in a newer one for the sake of greater eventual progress. That type is ever less ready to submit to insult. Those of the whites who seek to maintain the old white group control naturally do not relish seeing Negroes emancipating themselves from the old system. Unquote. The political and economic situation that led to the Tulsa riot of 1921 was a kind of backlash by whites, who, upon seeing the success of their black neighbors, wanted to push them back down. Now, I am going to go into the exact causes, the spark that ended up lighting this inferno in a few moments, but that spark wouldn't have had anything to light had it not been for what Walter White just described in The Nation. Had you not had this pre-existing system where prosperous black Americans were gaining the resentment of their racist white neighbors, several of them who were from, historically, more racist parts of the United States. But to the spark that lit the inferno, we don't have an exact picture of the events. And that's the case for actually a lot of the things that happened in this riot. But on May 30th, 1921, a 19-year-old shoeshiner named Dick Rowland needed to use the restroom. Uh, Rowland, he was black, and he was not permitted to use many of the restrooms on Tulsa's Main Street where he worked. If he needed to use the restroom, he actually had to go to one located inconveniently on top of a very tall building. And to get there, he needed to take the elevator. That elevator was operated by Sarah Page, a 17-year-old white woman. And there are a few different versions of the story that I've found about what happened between Roland and Page. One version, which seems plausible, is that Roland accidentally stepped on Page's foot. 
Another is that he tripped, began to fall, and steadied himself on her arm. Another story, which I think sounds a bit too movie-like to be true, is that the two young people, they were secretly lovers and, in that elevator, got into something of a lover's quarrel. In any case, Paige was alone in the elevator with Roland. She screamed, and word quickly went out that Roland had assaulted her. Now, the image of black men sexually assaulting and abusing white women is one of the most pernicious and vile racist tropes in American history. Uh, the very idea of black men as somehow sexually deviant or aggressive or abusive, that's a major set piece in D.W. Griffith's uh, historically important but also unforgivably racist and ahistorical film Birth of a Nation. And this idea and this trope is something that has fueled, you know, white supremacy and racism throughout history in the United States. I do not think it's probable that in that elevator, Roland assaulted Page. It's possible, but it's not probable. Rather, I think it's more likely that a white population imposed their own prejudices on the event and jumped to the conclusion that some of their worst racial fears had been justified. But, but, even if, for the sake of argument, Roland did assault Page, that does not justify the disproportionate violent response from Tulsa's white community. The afternoon newspaper, the Tulsa Tribune, seized upon the event with a headline that read, Nab Negro for Attacking Girl in Elevator, and basically advocated that Roland be hunted down and killed. A crowd of white men decided to do exactly what the newspaper said to do, and they proceeded in an armed mob to the courthouse where Roland was being held after the incident. They demanded that the sheriff hand over the young man to them to be lynched. To his credit, Sheriff Willard McCullough said that no, he was not simply going to open up his jail cells and hand people over to an angry mob, but he soon found himself outnumbered. He stationed men on the roof of the courthouse with rifles in view of the mob, perhaps to intimidate them, but a large group of white men just kept growing and growing. The sheriff tried to talk to them to get them to disperse, but he got, as one witness put it, hooted down. So a large mob of angry armed white people is at the courthouse demanding that they be allowed to kill this young black man. Meanwhile, in Greenwood, in the black community, a lot of people are angry. And there was apparently a great deal of debate about what to do and how to respond to this growing bad situation. A lot of people in Greenwood wanted to face the white mob head-on to stop the lynching of Dick Rowland by force if necessary. The founder of Greenwood, a black landowner named O.W. Greeley, tried to make the case for not showing up at the courthouse in numbers with guns. Greeley's reasoning was that if a bunch of black men with guns showed up to meet a bunch of white men with guns, that would just escalate the situation. And Greeley said that he was going to go to the courthouse to speak with the sheriff about the situation. And that, I think, was an extraordinarily brave thing to do. Here was a wealthy black man, a landowner, who is going in front of an angry mob with guns that probably resent him, they probably recognize him, and he is there to speak with the sheriff, whom that mob is hooting down, and also that mob, they are actively in the mood to kill somebody. The sheriff and Greeley spoke together, and the sheriff said that he had the situation in hand, that it looked bad, but that he'd waited out and the mob would disperse, and that he could prevent a lynching. 
Greeley was satisfied with this, and he returned to Greenwood. However, when he got there, he was unable to convince a lot of people in his community not to respond with force, despite the sheriff saying that the mob would probably disperse, despite Greeley's entreaties not to escalate the situation. A lot of, well, mostly younger black men, many of them World War I veterans who had gotten their old guns out, they were determined to meet the white mob with arms, and they showed up at the courthouse anyway. The group of black men said that they were there to help the sheriff prevent the lynching of Roland. Sheriff McCullough said that, no, he didn't need their help, and I imagine that he was sort of annoyed, and maybe terrified, that even more armed men were now outside the courthouse. And this is another part of the story where we're not exactly sure what happened. Reports on the Tulsa race riot uh, were gathered from witnesses sometimes years after the fact, and memories and such can be hazy. But it seems that one white man called out one of the armed black men, uh, calling him a racial epithet, and demanding that he surrender his pistol. There was, some witnesses say, a struggle, and a shot went off. We don't know who shot or why. Maybe it was a warning shot. Maybe somebody was trying to escalate the situation deliberately. Or maybe one of the several guns outside the courthouse went off accidentally. But in any case, that one shot went off, and it was a catalyst for a gunfight. The two armed groups began firing at each other, and after a few seconds, several men, white and black, were dead. The white mob, seeing this, began to fire freely at any and all blacks they could see, and began making their way to Greenwood. Now, the local authorities had noticed that tensions had been rising in Tulsa, and the National Guard was on hand to deal with the riot, kind of. They were mostly there to protect the white areas of Tulsa that were adjacent to and around Greenwood. The white mob began making their way through what had been called Black Wall Street, sometimes Little Africa, and began to kill indiscriminately whatever people they found for an entire night. And I actually do mean indiscriminately. Apparently the mob killed a fair amount of African Americans and also accidentally killed some white people. Some blacks did resist, and there were exchanges of gunfire. Some people, it seems, hunkered down in their homes and hoped to wait it out, but that was to no avail. White rioters broke into African-American homes, dragged people in the street, and demanded that their new prisoners be sent to makeshift detention centers. Sometime around 1 a.m., the mob began setting fire to Greenwood, and soon the sky above the neighborhood was choked with smoke as the buildings were consumed. People were dragged through the street, and rioters even went to the homes of whites who employed black servants, cooks, or butlers, and demanded that they turn over their live-in staff for detention or death. And this is where the Tulsa riots go from being more than just the activity of an angry mob to something else. Some whites actually used air power on Greenwood, dropping firebombs on the black neighborhood from World War I-era planes that just happened to be hanging around the town. That is, I think, more than just a riot. That's something you do in a war. And this violence, this fire, this death, it continued throughout the night. The next day, martial law was declared, and the National Guard essentially took over the city, suppressing the riot. At the end of it all, Greenwood, Black Wall Street, Little Africa, was gone. Over 30 blocks of city 
had been wiped away by the flames and the riots. After that, a state committee convened to look into the event. The chairman, Judge Loyal J. Martin, was quoted in the New York Times in 1921 as saying, quote, Tulsa can only redeem herself from the countrywide shame and humiliation into which she is today plunged by complete restitution and rehabilitation of the destroyed black belt. The rest of the United States must know that the real citizenship of Tulsa weeps at this unspeakable crime and will make good the damage so far as it can be done to the last penny. Unquote. Nothing like that happened. Judge Martin's solution was ignored. After the riots, the city of Tulsa banned funerals for the dead African Americans. Headstones were not allowed, nor was anything else that would have allowed black residents to mourn or memorialize the people that they had lost. The official numbers of dead after the riot were 35. But historians now think that that real number was probably over 300. Over 10,000 people were left homeless, and the citizens of what had been known as Black Wall Street, a successful, wealthy, African-American community, they soon found themselves living in shacks and tents. Insurance claims against the city of Tulsa from Greenwood residents were, after the riot, denied. No charges were filed against any of the whites who had done this. 57 blacks were indicted for rioting. As for Dick Rowland, the charges against him were dropped, and he moved to Kansas. After the Tulsa riot, the incident was papered over. For years, it wasn't talked about or written about to any great extent. In 1996, the Oklahoma State Legislature allowed for an investigation into the event, and a 2001 report, which brought new prominence to the events that I've been talking to you about today, finally surfaced. And now, people like me are able to talk to people like you about one of the worst and most violent events in America's racial history. And the Tulsa race riot is extreme, but it is by no means the only incident of its type. Similar riots happened in cities like Chicago and Knoxville, and while those riots weren't as intense as what happened in Tulsa, they were still tragic for the people involved. And knowing about things like Tulsa puts the civil rights movement in the 60s in a new light. Again, that movement, it was not just about drinking fountains and lunch counters or even voting rights, though those things, they were all essential too. In the 1960s, African Americans resisted peacefully, loudly, and effectively a system that had routinely committed vicious violence upon them. And hopefully, because of that peaceful resistance, Hopefully, we will never have another riot like Tulsa again. Last week, we had a slight technical problem with podcast hosting. Um, if you downloaded last week's episode and there was a weird silence in the middle, or if it cut off early, uh, check your feed. An updated, fixed version of the episode is available. So, sorry about that. Please check that out. Hosting has all kinds of fun issues you can deal with. Um, if you enjoy the podcast, please do also contribute to the Patreon campaign, and I would really appreciate you giving whatever you think is fair every month to the podcast, because staying ad-free is important to me. Go on iTunes, go on Stitcher, find us, give us a rating, give us a review, follow me on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. I'm on Tumblr now, 
Uh, my Tumblr is joestrecker.tumblr.com. I'll be posting the podcast episodes there. Also, probably a lot of things about science fiction and comic books. Uh, go on Facebook, click the like button, all that social media, do it. And I will see you guys next week for an episode where I promise you no one will die.